Good afternoon. I'm Rhonda Feynman, and this is the Healthy Options Program. Our topic today on Healthy Options is nonviolent communication, and our guest is Peggy Smith, co-founder of the Maine Nonviolent Communications Network. Peggy Smith is also a certified trainer with the International Center for Nonviolent Communication. She has worked both in Maine and internationally with the Seeds of Peace International Camp, sharing nonviolent communication skills with educators from the Middle East and South Asia. She holds a master's degree in literacy and language arts from the University of Pennsylvania and has taught in public and alternative schools for 32 years before she began to devote herself full-time to nonviolent communication training. A student of mindfulness since 1991, Peggy Smith has, or, has been ordained as a teacher by Zen master and peace activist Thich Nhat Hanh, and has incorporated mindfulness practice in the teaching of nonviolent communication. Welcome to Healthy Options, Peggy Smith. So glad to have you here with us today to speak about this vitally important subject, and especially in today's world. So thank you for being here. It's great to be here with you, Rhonda. Thank you for the honor of uh, being here on the radio with me. That's wonderful. Um, let's start at the beginning. Not everyone knows what nonviolent communication is. So what are we talking about? What will we be talking about? Ah, nonviolent communication is a way of thinking and speaking uh, developed by a man named Marshall Rosenberg. And... Marshall had a great curiosity about where our emotional states come from. He also had a great curiosity about why some people um, respond to situations with different forms of violence and why people who have received violence can respond compassionately. And this was just a really big uh, question in his life. He was a psychologist and he uh, worked with people all of his life as he developed this way of thinking. And then eventually he started teaching this all over the world. Does, did that answer your question, Rhonda? Well, I, 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 that's, I think we can unpack that even a, a little bit more because we're talking about communication. We're talking about language, are we? Are we also talking about nonverbal communication? What, what, what do we mean by communication? Well, as you're indicating, communication comes in all ways. So I think of nonviolent communication as Marshall Rosenberg developed really as a way of thinking. And then later I started uh, studying neurobiology with the neurobiology uh, educator, Sarah Payton. And because she was also a nonviolent communication trainer and she wanted to know why it worked. You know, it was effective, but she didn't understand why. And so she started exploring neurobiology. And from studying with her, I have a sense of that. So what I what I how I hold it, and you know, this is not my field. I'm not an expert in neurobiology. Um, but the way I hold it is this: there's one of our hemispheres' primary function is creating order and agreeing and disagreeing and making things right and wrong, deserving of honor or punishment, right? That's one of our hemispheres. And it's very important for us because it's what helps us get things done. Our other hemisphere's primary function is connection. And it is where we're supposed to 
handle the strong emotions that are pulsing through our nervous system. However, um, our culture is so focused on good, bad, right, wrong, that it has that part of our brain has taken precedence over the connectivity brain, part of our brain, the relational part of our brain, where is what's gotten us into the big pickle that we're in. And what I try to help people do is actually learn the skills of empathy so that their right, their right relational hemisphere can become strengthened and it becomes the lead uh, way of connecting with people and the other is more supportive. So to me, nonviolent communication is far more important how am I thinking about a situation as opposed to how I talk. Some people think nonviolent communication is a script and you plug in the words in the script, but that can be so done from an instrumental formulaic way that it doesn't create connection. So to me, I, I help people learn the script so that they can let go of the script and be relational. Well, it's like being a great musician, Peggy. You know, John Coltrane practiced scales all the time before he performed. And if everyone knows John, John Coltrane's an avant-garde jazz uh, a person. And then when he performed, he let go of the scale and used it as its foundation and tool. So exactly, we're, we're going to be John Coltrane. As we, as we, as <laughs> well, we I don't quote. I don't think I aspire quite that high, but I would say that all accomplished musicians, because the person I teach with is or has been a professional uh, singer in her life, um, all musicians practice scales, but then when they go out and perform, they're not doing their scales. So absolutely, I, I hold it the same. And all artists and such. So. You know, there there are so many threads that that were just uh, were, were just uh, um, come to mind as as uh, as I'm listening to your uh, conversation about about nonviolent communication and a way of thinking and a way of thinking and empathy that seems to be something that you're emphasizing that that goes together and so we uh, and I'm gonna see if I can and be the audience for a moment and say, does that mean we have to be thinking of the other before as we are listening or communicating? Or, Well, it depends why we want to listen and communicate. Do we want to be right? Do we want to have power over? Or do we want connection? Do we want true understanding? We all want under to be understood. And what we often don't realize is we have to show and demonstrate understanding in a way to open up others to be able to hear us. So to me, it's not an either or. But what I think is so important, Rhonda, and that has been really exciting me in the last number of years, is thinking about empathy. I mean, how often do we say you need to be more empathic or I need to be more empathic? So we have a lot of should around that. We should be more empathic. And I always, I like to say to people, don't should on yourself and don't should on anybody else. Okay. What I think we fail to recognize is that while empathy is an innate human capacity, just like walking, 
talking, reading, writing, these are innate human capacities. We have to be taught. And empathy is the same way. It's not, oh, I naturally just kind of get it or I don't. No, someone needs to teach it to us. And it can be taught to us at any stage of our life. So uh, let's get really basic. What's empathy? Well, that's a really fascinating question because like many things, empathy has come to take on many definitions. And so I rarely use the word empathy uh, because I think it's muddy. Uh, people start to confuse empathy with, I only care about you and I don't care about me. And that is not my definition of empathy. So um, I'm holding empathy. I love Sarah Payton's term for it, warm accompaniment. Hmm. That this is what our nervous systems crave, warm accompaniment. This is what settles our nervous systems when we're agitated and what creates a lot of inner disharmony and disease is when we think we're alone in having to deal with issues. In fact, there is growing research that trauma is less the event and more was my nervous system. Did my nervous system have a sense of warm accompaniment from others in dealing with it? Or was I left alone to try to handle it myself? And that's what gets lodged in the body as um, trauma. I, I, I got tingles. I, I got goosebumps when you said that. Did, let's everybody take a breath here. Because let's just let that sink in. Because warm accompaniment, th that's it. Why? And let's just take a moment. Everybody, have that sense of when do you get angry? Or when do you feel irritated or what what is happening is this what is happening in us that that would then say we lash out or we're harsh or we say an, an unkind thing or whatever whatever that is is it because you're defending something or or you don't feel connected what that warm accompaniment well i want to also uh broaden that even question Rhonda, because how often do we do it to ourselves so our inner voice is so harsh, so cruel, so uh, humiliating and shaming. And that is also, we don't know how to warmly accompany ourselves. And why? Because when we were little ones, people um, often were trying to support us, trying to teach us how to be functional adults with shaming, blaming, punishing, and so our prefrontal cortex, which is the part of our brain that talks to our amygdala when our amygdala is frightened, it talks to us with the same kind of language that we were spoken to when we were little. And very few of us actually were raised with a sense of deep warmth. And, and it's not that our, our parents didn't love us or our care providers didn't love us, but they also didn't know. So they couldn't teach us what they didn't know. This is so important, so important right now, the warm accompaniment and how we learned. Does this, and this gets into a sense of self-regulation, doesn't it? Absolutely. This is all about uh, noticing when I'm getting agitated and knowing how to 
support myself in calming. Uh, so when we say self-regulation, it means my amygdala is in alarm and it and it's yearning for support. And so we can learn the skills to help our amygdalas calm down and help other people's amygdalas calm down. And the amygdala, by the way, is the old brain. It's our emotional brain. It's, it's, it's not the prefrontal cortex may be where we think and reason. The amygdala is, is very much more reactive and, and very fundamental, would you well, say? Well, I call it the car alarm of our bodies because it, its job is to scan all the time. Am I safe? Am I safe? Am I safe? Or as Sarah will say, am I safe? Do I matter? Am I safe? Do I matter? Because if I don't matter, then I'm really actually not safe. So it's another flavor of that same question. And if the amygdala gets feedback that I'm not safe, then it asks the body to produce adrenaline or cortisol, depending if I'm going to fight or flee. And Sarah has also, I mean, many of us have heard fight and flight. And she adds another word into the mix, which I really love, which is alarmed aloneness. Is that the phrase? The phrase is alarmed aloneness. And when I say that to a group of people, have you ever experienced a sense of alarmed aloneness? It doesn't mean you're alone. Sometimes we're alone in the woods. We feel very comfortable and we feel great, right? Our, our, the need of solitude and connection to nature is well nourished. But I can be in a group of a lot of people and I can feel a deep sense of aloneness in my nervous system. So she hypothesizes that that is the uh, amygdala in the right hemisphere being triggered and that is alarmed aloneness whereas fight and flight comes more from the amygdala of the left hemisphere that's that that's how she explains it so I, I love it. It's, you know, my uh, audience and uh, people who are listening, we do a lot about trauma and trauma resiliency on this show. So uh, many of my regular listeners are really quite familiar with these terms. And I love this way of explaining it that opens up a whole new vista of, of a way of approaching trauma and, and just how we are in the world. Yeah. If you have just tuned in, by the way, this is WERU Community Radio. This is the Healthy Options Program. I'm Rhonda Feynman, and we are speaking with Peggy Smith about her work in teaching nonviolent communication skills. And we're learning so much here. I want to continue this sense of self-regulation. So if we have that warm accompaniment and we have the, that fear, that the amygdala alarmed aloneness, how does that play into self-regulation and what do we mean by that? Yes. Uh, you know, I've used that term myself, Rhonda, but just hearing you say it, um, it's like, oh, because as humans, and, you know, we say self-regulation, that implies, again, that I'm doing it alone. And what helps us is having a sense that we are not alone. And sometimes... We need to call supports that are not physically right there. Uh, like, so sometimes when I'm uh, working with people and they talk about some great fear or some great al um, aloneness or 
uh, grief that they have and that they're too afraid to look at it because it's too huge. Uh, I often say, well, who do you want to have sitting with you on the edge of this grief? And it can be someone you know, but it can be someone from history. And it was so interesting. Last week, someone really fought for a long time and she finally said, Maya Angelou. <laughs> and I was like, why not? Why not? Yeah, I thought, wow, I hadn't thought about Maya Angelou, but yeah, I'd love her to be with me when I'm sitting on the edge of my grief. So uh, there are so many ways we can learn to not, uh, to, yes, have self-regulation, but knowing that it's not, I'm an island unto myself, I have to power through this, I have to conquer myself. No, actually, it's, it's more of a softening to letting in connection. I, yes, as you were speaking, that, that's where my, my hand went right to my heart. That sense of that it, it is just an opening. It's a soften, it is a softening. And to help our nervous system understand that in that moment, you know, I actually might not be under attack because as you and I'm sure many of your listeners know that the amygdala is one of the places we store our trauma memories. So when something happens around us and the amygdala has no sense of time, none whatsoever. So if something stimulates an old trauma memory, my body is reacting as if the trauma is happening. And so one, one of the very simplest ways uh, is to let the body look around and understand, oh, in this moment, there are no tigers here, or there is no one threatening me with a gun. You know? And one way we do that is sitting or standing and then twisting, keeping our hips still, but twisting our bodies all the way around to the left and looking behind, and are there any tigers there? And then twisting all the way to the other side, all the way around, and, and really asking, are there any tigers there? Yeah. And then even maybe up and down. Okay, this is a way to help our bodies be reassured that in this moment, the danger is not present. This helps the amygdala calm down. And hopefully you are in a, not being chased by, <laughs> by something horrible. And we can talk about, uh, you know, how does one deal if you are in a dangerous situation and to, uh, I know, is there a way to deal with that? Is there something that, that this work talks to, uh, speaks to about that? Yes, it, absolutely. And I, I am a little hesitant to talk about it because I know that our instrumental brain will right away go, you see, you should be able to handle all situations all the time. And yet I also want to say that uh, there is a story that Marshall Rosenberg used to share that uh, he was, I think, in Cincinnati somewhere and he was teaching nonviolent communication. And then uh, a, a few months later, he was back and somebody came up to him at break and said, I want to tell you something that happened to me. And the story goes that this was a person, a woman who worked at a homeless shelter and it was late at night and somebody came in. The shelter was full and this person was a large bodied human and wanted a space. And she informed them that the, the space was full and they got very angry and she was on the floor. And this person was sitting on her chest with a knife at her throat. 
And in that moment, she remembered, oh, empathy. Oh, I can be curious about the feelings and needs of this other person. So this is a person who was able to keep her nervous system regulated. And she made some guesses about how they were feeling and what their needs were. And everything calmed down. And she was able to get back to her desk and find another place at another shelter for this person. So, yes, the more resilient we are, it's called our window of tolerance. So the more resilient we are, the wider our window of tolerance. And we can stay very self-connected, even in danger. How, how do we expand that? How do we expand that window of tolerance? Is, oh, that uh, is you call me because I'm teaching at the Hutchinson Center a class called Helping Calm Strong Emotions. So this is the work that we do. And uh, Sarah Payton calls this resonant language. These are different strategies that we can learn and then practice on uh, helping our nervous system stay as calm as possible. I just want to acknowledge, though, that, I mean, we are, we have experienced and still in at least one global pandemic, maybe more, right? We are living in the time of um, climate collapse. I mean, there are many reasons why our nervous systems are on edge. Whether we even agree with it or not, our nervous systems know. Whether, you know, we are hopeful or depressed, our nervous systems, you know, just know that there are many things. And, And then, of course, there's the people who live in in homes that are you know not as caring and loving as we might like everybody to have excuse me i have to plug in my computer here um so i i say it all with care that some of us are working with even more challenges than others yes and and that is something to totally and absolutely acknowledge and as i often say as we talk about these kinds of of skills that Again, not to fall into the left brain, oh, I'm doing it wrong, or I'm not good enough, or I should be able to. Mm-hmm. So how do we learn self-empathy? I, I, we're doing two different how do we's. I mm-hmm. want to learn about that, and I also want to learn about some of the, uh, some of the scripts that we, we need to practice. So, uh, so this is one of my favorite ones. So, and I think we can do it even on air. Okay? Oh, we're going to do something. Okay, everybody, get ready. Well, well not, not quite yet. The okay, not quite yet. Thing, the first thing we want to do is review what are the things that block empathy for myself and others. Okay, and these are things that are, as you said, our left hemisphere often goes to because this is what it was taught would be helpful. So here are some of those things advising and educating and that was a big one for me because i was a school teacher for 32 years you know advising and educating is a well-grooved pathway in my nervous system right uh another thing is consoling or reassuring oh you did the best you could it'll be okay right another is one-upping or storytelling like oh you think that's bad wait till you hear what happened to me or one of my father's favorites was, well, you know, you could live in Beirut or Yemen or Ukraine or Ukraine or Afghanistan. Okay. 
Another uh, block is questioning, wanting to get more details. When did this begin? How long did it last? Okay, that's our inquiring mind wanting to know. Or giving the sort of advice of, oh, don't worry, it's silly to worry. You know, 100 years from now, this won't be important. And one of my very, very favorite is spiritualizing. Oh, it's probably karma. You know, you, you never get more than you can deal with. Or when one door closes, another always opens. These are actually all things that shut down our connection as opposed to opening our connection. Fixing. And various strategies for fixing. And yet I also want to say they are also strategies for trying to be helpful. It's just that it's only what I've learned. Again, getting back to empathy is something that we need to teach, that we can't just assume people will magically know. Okay? And the beauty is that it's not hard. It's not hard to teach empathy. And then it's just a matter of practicing. So, shall we do a little exercise? Oh, I think we shall. Okay. <laughs> so, I'm thinking, Rhonda, maybe you and I will do it together, and maybe people at home could just try it you, as you we're know, talking. Before we do it, let me do just tell people, if you've just tuned in, that um, you are listening to the Healthy Options Program right here on WERU Community Radio. I'm Rhonda Feynman. We are learning uh, all about nonviolent communication with our guest, Peggy Smith, co-founder of the Maine Nonviolent Communication Network. And I am thrilled that we get to uh, practice something. We're going to learn something right now. And if you are driving, um, pay attention <laughs> to the road or pull over. If, uh, right, if you can, how do we need to set this up? Where do, do people need to be sitting or? Um... No. No, be wherever you are. Wherever you are, but you're right. If you're driving, uh, maybe you just want to be an observer and, and not actually do this. This right? will be archived and recorded. You can come back to it later. There you go. All right. So, Rhonda, what I'm going to ask you to do is uh, finish a sentence. And the sentence I'm going to invite you to finish is, I am irritated about. But then I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. After you finish your sentence... I'm going to give you one of those empathy blockers. I'm going to respond with one of those blockers we were just talking about. And all I want you to do is notice how does that land in your body? What does it feel like in your body to receive that? And then I'm going to ask you to say the sentence again, and I'm going to respond with uh, something that is in the resonance category. And you'll just notice what does it feel like in your body? And this is what people can do at home. They could also finish the sentence, I am irritated about. And then when I give the blocker, they can notice what does it feel like. And when I give the resonance, what does it feel like? Well, are you willing to give it a try? Let's go for it. Okay. So if you would just begin with um, finishing the sentence, I am irritated about. Where to begin? Okay. Uh, I am just one sentence, not a whole paragraph. <laughs> Very good. I am irritated about bullying, nastiness. It's, or should I try something different? Oh, is that, it's, That's could, maybe you could be specific. Get, make am, it a little juicier. Okay. I am irritated 
by intolerance, people being racist or anti-Semitic or anti or just not respecting other people in the world, in the community. Gee, I really have a good book for you to read so that you can get over this. Just notice what does that feel like in your body? Yes, it went right to my head. So, oh. so part of me was, oh, really? There's a good book, but that doesn't really solve it. But okay, there's a good book. Okay, but right. that yeah. But I'm still irritated. But okay, there's a good book. Now okay. I'm I'm curious about the book, but okay. All right. All right. And so, would you again? I am irritated about. Oh, same thing. Yes. Yeah, I am irritated about bullying, racism, anti-Semitism, people not respecting each other in the community. Rhonda, of course you feel irritated. Okay, now I'm not in my brain anymore. Now I'm, uh-huh. Now I, I got a little tight, right? A uh, little in my chest or in my little diaphragm, like, uh-huh. Like, yeah, I feel a little snarky, you know, I'd like, yeah. Would you like acknowledgement that racism and anti-Semitism and isms of all sorts is heartbreaking to you? Yes. 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 And then I could say, yes, my heart is breaking. Mm. Yes. Mm. Yes. And we could have a, a whole conversation about on that level. Hmm. Mm. And so I'm wondering if what I what you experienced was some for, form of relaxing. Relaxing. My belly sunk. I started. I felt grounded. Okay. I felt that I was abs I was able to ex to take in that acknowledgement. I was able to take in. Yes. Mm. And, and this is a this is a form of warm accompaniment for ourselves we can do this for ourselves that when we find our you know our brains spinning this is wrong this shouldn't be like this blah, 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 and and we are spinning up inside and which in fact contract makes us tight and contracts us once we notice that we can turn to ourselves and use our own name so i would use the name peggy but don't you use that Rhonda? right you use your own name <laughs> And just say, of course you're feeling whatever. Uh, and it's not the end of the conversation. It's not like it solves it, but it changes the trajectory of the energy within ourselves. Instead of spiraling into tightness, it opens us up. I had the sense that I didn't have to work so hard. I didn't have to defend something or explain or work really hard to get to get I, what I needed. What did I need? I ne needed the acknowledgement. Well, I didn't have to work so hard to 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 get to get that. That there's yeah. that that sense of of perhaps are all arguments or all sadness. Is that all really about working so hard or get not getting something met or? Anyway, well, um, I would say that Sarah Payton would say all uh, rage, disgust is unrecognized and unheld mourning. 
Let's take that in for a moment. Take a breath, everyone. Another little moment. Mm-hmm. Unheld. Say it again, Peggy, please. Yeah, unrecognized Peggy. and unheld mourning. Hmm. And again, as in our culture, we are not given many skills for mourning. We are given a lot of school of skills for blaming and judging and analyzing and punishing. But mourning is so all right, more is um mourning is in our relational hemisphere. And we don't have much real experience. And then we have timetables. What? It's been a week? Okay. You should be moving, should, right? We're shooting on ourselves again, moving on, right? And mm-hmm. so then our morning becomes underground because we think we can't show it anymore. Things like that. Yeah. And I, I, I'm, I'm also thinking of, the, of, of, of a great, of a morning. I'm thinking of, as we were discussing earlier, that little child learning by being shamed, learning by being judged, learning by be quiet now, do this now, whatever, whatever, whatever it is. Um, and that's a sense of grief. That's a sense of mourning. Absolutely. Yeah. Of not being held in a particular way that you, that we needed. And so we're taking that little person with us. Would that be that, that, that kind of grief and mourning on that one level? Absolutely. Yeah. And yet for any parents who are listening, just so that we're not, uh, creating a tremendous amount of anxiety in them. Uh, (laughs) Research indicates that parents only, to get secure attachment, a child only uh, wants parents who are accurate 80% of the time. You don't want to be accurate 100% of the time because that also does not help produce secure attachment. Oh, good. Okay. Um, Good news, everyone. Good news. What is it? The the good enough mother? Who is that? There's a a, a therapist who talked about the good enough, the good enough parent, (laughs) right? Uh 80%. Right. Right. Oh, my goodness. Yes. So acknowledgement guesses is one form of resonance. Um, And there are many forms of resonance that in that class, uh, we break down each of them and give people a taste of each one. And one of them happens to be feelings and needs guesses, which is the heart of nonviolent communication. So it sort of takes us back to the conversation of nonviolent communication. Being accurate in able to name someone's emotions, our nervous systems really crave people accurately reading us. And this is what we wanted as infants. We wanted our care provider to accurately read us. And that's the work of Beatrice Beebe, who's been studying infants and their care providers since the 70s by putting a camera both on the infant and the care provider. She calls it the mother, but um, it's not gender in any way specific. But she keeps a camera on both and she records what's happening frame by frame in the nonverbal and verbal interactions. And what she found was that... uh, Really, relational parents will, for in a nanosecond, reflect the same facial expression of the child. So if the child is hungry and they make a certain face, the parent actually makes that same face, right? And the baby says, oh, I exist. I matter. I'm seen. 
But a parent who's not tuned in doesn't necessarily make the same face, might make a different face, right? And it happens very, very quickly. But this is the way, and this is what we're still craving as adults. Can someone see me and name what's true for me accurately? And that's part of nonviolent communication, naming the feeling, but then connecting it to what Marshall called universal human needs, that all humans share the same qualities that motivate all of our behavior, all of our words and actions. We're seeking these uh, needs, skillfully or unskillfully. Skillfully or unskillfully, human needs. And so we are in this class and and actually, and what we're talking about is to perhaps uh, learn some new skills or practice the the skills that are useful, that are more successful in getting that need recognized. I I like to say the need. How do we do that? Marshall said needs met. And I found that in my own practice that the word met seemed too final. Like, oh, the need is met. And so then I can, that's done. I can put it on the shelf. I don't need to attend to that anymore because it's met. Um, Where some trainers think of it as I meet you and like shaking hands with the needs. But it just felt too final to me. So I shifted that frame to nurtured. Because to me, the needs that flow in us are like a flowering bush. It needs, they need care. They always need care. And sometimes they need feeding and sometimes they need pruning. Right. So um, I want to nurture the need. And that's how I refer to it. Needs nurturing the need. And I I want to get back to this self nurturing. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about the self nurturing um, because it seems we need (laughs) we need to nurture ourselves. The, so that because we it it, it, it is it too much to uh, to ask everyone you know it, it is it coming from other people giving us what we need or do we give ourselves what we need what's what's that balance of you know you hear oh she's so needy he's so needy as if that's a bad thing and sometimes well I wish Marshall had chosen a different word because that is how our nervous systems hold the word need like for many people there's just like I was teaching once and this person who was quite a few years older than me sort of staggered to her feet and she said, neat, there, pathetic. And the spit just shot across the room. And I went, oh yeah, that this is how our nervous systems hold that word. So some people call them universal human motivators to sidestep our preconditioning around the, the word need. And when we say, uh, do we expect other people to meet our needs or do we meet them ourselves? To me, that's not getting the real understanding of the word need because the needs live in us, whether anyone or even us do anything to support it. So we have the need of connection. We have the need of learning and growth. We have the need of support. It doesn't actually, and that need lives in us, whether we receive it from the outside world or offer it to ourselves, it doesn't matter, but we'll keep seeking it. So 
it's like uh, each need wants to be fulfilled and will seek as best it can some expression of that. So there's a difference between a universal human need and a strategy to nurture the need. So what other people do for us or even what we do for ourselves, those are strategies because those are actions. The need is unconnected to actions, really. So what is an action that we could, that, that you're teaching, that, that this, this, this teaches? What is Ooh, I mean, there are thousands of actions, right? So yes. uh, I learned to ask for what I think I want. This is part of nonviolent communication, is learning how to make requests as opposed to demands. And even that is tricky because do we in our nervous system believe that other people will try, will support us? If I truly make it a request and not some sort of sweetly worded demand. So a request has nothing to do with how many times you say please. <laughs> okay, everyone, listen. <laughs> it has to do with uh, is my nervous system ready to receive no? without blaming or judging the other or myself. And oh, let's say that again, please. These yeah. little gems, say it again. Are we willing? I, Go ahead. Are we willing, is our nervous system willing to receive a no without blaming the other or ourselves? Like we blame the other by, oh, they're so inconsiderate. They're so selfish. They're so needy, uh, you know, and self-absorbed. Or we blame ourselves. I should never have asked. I know better. I should just take care of it myself. You know, so again, that's our instrumental brain trying to figure out who's right, who's wrong. And nonviolent communication is just in a different universe, really. Hearing the no, how do I feel? And what needs are coming up for me? And can I have any curiosity about the feelings and needs of the other who is saying no? And I think one of the reasons, Rhonda, why no is such a triggering word in our culture is because no is usually the end of the conversation. But in nonviolent communication, we begin to really practice being curious. So if I'm receiving a no, one, I want to authentically register what's happening in me, not skipping over that. And when I am deeply self-connected, it really stimulates my curiosity because humans really are a connecting species. We want to be connected and we can learn how to be curious where the no came from because there is a saying that every no is a yes to something. So Ooh. can I be curious about the yes behind someone else's no? And, and so no is not the end of a conversation. It's just, oh, we turned on a different road and we're having a different conversation but we're still connected. So what's the follow-up to that? Noticing where, what that no felt like inside you, where that nervous system, what happened in your nervous system? And then curiosity. That's the key, curiosity. As, and what would be a follow-up to that, to a, to a no? I mean, seriously. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll share another little story with okay, you. Okay, great. So I, I once did a, a, a full introduction to nonviolent communication, which to me is a two-day training. And, but I was cramming it into one day. It just happened to be. So I was talking really, really fast. And one of the, at 
some point I said, every no is a yes to something. And there was a man way in the back of the room who raised his hand and he said, I have a 16-year-old son and I don't know what you're talking about. And But we didn't have time to explore it. So that was just sort of the end of the conversation. And then a few days later, I got an email. NBC is a miracle. That was all. And in NBC, we, we really practice making observations. So I wrote him back and said, well, that's wonderful, but what stimulated you to write this email? And he wrote me back and said, I have a bad back. I have a very heavy chair. I asked my 16-year-old to move the chair, and he said, no. <laughs> and then I remembered that you said every no is a yes to something. And he didn't tell me exactly what he said to his son, but it was some sort of curiosity about why he said no. And what he got back was that his son was late for meeting his friends, but that he would move the chair the next day. So there it is. There is there is a yes behind that no. And NVS, by the way, nonviolent communication is, is, uh, is what we're talking about. And that's what the NVS was that you were saying, if you uh, just NBC. can. NBC, right. I'm sorry. Nonviolent NBC. Right. NBC, yes. See, yes. Thank, NBC. thank you for Rhonda, because I get into my little uh, jargon, as my brother's always saying. You're always talking jargon. Uh, but <laughs> nonviolent communication is a mouthful to say over and over again. Yes, exactly. Okay, I know. Uh, but for our purposes, for people who've just tuned in, by the way, and if you have just tuned in, this is the Healthy Options Program on WERU Community Radio. I'm Rhonda Feynman. We're discussing nonviolent communication with our guest, Peggy Smith, who is the co-founder of the Maine Nonviolent Communication Network. So we were talking a little bit about um, no being yes. I, I'm loving that. But also, and also, that sense of self-empathy. How do we talk to ourselves? We, way back at the beginning of the show, we were learn, we, you talked about we, we, we have that negative conversation or a difficult conversation based on what we've learned or known. How do we shift that? Well, it's the same practices that we might learn um, to support other people. We practice them in our own minds. Um, Sarah Payton often says, our brains ought to be a gentle, kind place to live. And if they're not, then it means uh, we have memories that are difficult or we were taught it to speak to ourselves in ways that are shaming and blaming and we can re-educate ourselves. So one of the practices not that I don't do in a basic nonviolent communication workshop or even in the Calming Strong Emotions workshop, but um, in more advanced trainings, we do something that Sarah calls time travel empathy. So once I learn how to respond empathically, I can actually time travel to moments in my life that I remember, so that any recurring memory that's unpleasant <laughs> is a moment that's waiting for us to go back and get warm accompaniment for that moment. And it is actually so amazing how, yeah, how healing and supportive that is, Rhonda, that people can really start to reframe how they teach themselves by sort of gathering up those moments when we were not received in the way we 
had hoped and kind of get the, that receiving now in the present moment. We can heal the past in the present moment. That is so powerful. What a, what a thought. What a, what a practice. Yeah. And I've even used it um, time travel into the future when there's an event that's going to be happening that I have fear or trepidation about it. We can actually time travel to the, to the future moment and greet ourselves with empathy. And um, it's, it's amazing how much easier those moments are when then when we actually do them. The mind is a gentle place, should be, quote, the shoulds. There we go for the shoulds. The mind, a gentle place to live. And the idea of the, um, that, that resonance, that, that nurturing that we can give ourselves and our history. We can give our history that, yes. that same nurturing. Exactly. So that uh, we do not have to live uh, confined by our history. That is very profound. We are not confined by our history. We are influenced, but we don't have to be confined by it. Yeah. And of course, it takes practice and warm accompaniment, either from ourselves or from someone else. Like many of us actually don't have warmth for ourselves. And so to have someone who has warmth for us, to help us, get started in that journey or even if we can have warmth for ourselves most of the time and then something happens and it throws us back into our old trauma then you know we have our support system that can hold us with warmth in in those moments when our because our journey's not linear no so, it's not yeah and i guess my passion right now is to increase the number of people who really understand resonance so that we can help each other because being right isn't really working very much for us but and we can have resonance for people even people we disagree with and this is what i think is essential people say how do i talk to my neighbor how do i talk to my uncle george you know uh and it's like, ah resonance and it's not the only part of the conversation, but resonance is what helps conversations actually begin to real conversations, not mutual monologues. Because mostly, you know, we're actually having just mutual monologues. And <laughs> so how do we actually have dialogue? Resonance is a key so that I can stay grounded in myself. Uh, and, and I can reach across some sort of ideological divide. Explain more about resonance. Yeah, so resonance is, again, another term for warm accompaniment or empathy. It's what activates our right hemisphere so that, so that we're speaking from that place as opposed to right, wrong, good, bad. And sorry, I know I throw out different terms. No, it, it's it's one. It's fine. We're 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 and and we're uh, defining them here, and so we can uh, get that sense of what what we're speaking of: mutual monologues versus dialogue. Mm -hmm. And the dialogue happens when we have that resonance 
as in the example that we did together, if you've just tuned in, we did a little bit of an exercise you can get in the archives, uh, that sense of, of acknowledging. And you said something about guessing. Guessing. Tell, it, it seems to be part of this when you're trying to have a dialogue. Well, resonance, I always frame resonance as a question. Not like I div I divine that this is what you need, or this is a common thing. I intuit that you need blah, blah, blah. And to me, that's not resonance because the I is the leading thing here. So for me, I always phrase it as, are you, are you, are you wanting acknowledgement for how painful this is? Uh, are you wanting acknowledgement for how uh, exhausted you are? Or uh, would you like acknowledgement for how disgusted you are? So you the focus when I'm trying to resonate with someone is on the other, not my somehow magical abilities to divine what you need. Yeah. It's coming to me. You need. <laughs> <laughs> There was something in, in, the, in this class that you're going to be doing and, and in the nonviolent communication work about being having a tolerance, it's a, long, a bigger tolerance for strong emotions so that you can move beyond what is and not get triggered yourself. And I know we only have a few minutes left, but perhaps you could talk to that because I think it's, uh, I have that be exactly about resonance and dialogue, so. Well, this is all part of polyvagal theory. So uh, is my nervous system in social engagement? Or is it moving into a fear place? Or moving into a total shutdown place? And to actually have dialogue, uh, I, I want to be in social engagement. And so the window of tolerance is my inner capacity to stay in social engagement before my nervous system starts to move into some form of fear response or to notice, oh, I'm in a fear response and moving back into social engagement. So these are practices, right? Practices that we do and being aware of what my body is doing, being aware of body sensations is actually one of the ways that I increase my window of tolerance. Uh, making feelings and needs guesses is a way to widen my window of tolerance. Um, making acknowledgement guesses is a way, and again, not only to others, but of myself, of widening my window of tolerance. Here's another one that I love that uh, it's called impossible dream guesses. This is another form of resonance. And this is really helpful when someone is really stuck about something. And do we have time for a story? Because I don't yes, have Yes, we do. Okay. We do. So I was teaching this about to a group two of, minutes. Yep. Okay. I was teaching this to a group of people, and one of them was a third grade teacher. And when we came back to class the next week, she shared that she had been trying to teach her third graders about impossible dream guesses. And first she said, you know, it was a really low energy day. There were about four kids with their heads down on the desk when they were starting this uh, little exercise. And what she did was she shared something that was she was she personally was really stuck about. And it had to do with the fact that her teenage son had the job in the family, which he had agreed to, of mowing the lawn. But this was June and he hadn't mowed the lawn and the lawn was getting pretty 
uh, robust. And she was really frustrated because nothing was working to try to get him to get him to do his job. And so how frustrated she was. So her third graders started. So the thing about impossible dream guesses is that they have to be really impossible, not improbable, but impossible. <laughs> and so first her third graders were giving her ways that she could coerce her teenager to mow the lawn, you know, the things that they were used to. And finally, one of the kids came up with this impossible dream guess. Would you like it if every time it rained, the grass automatically mowed itself? <laughs> yes, mom. <laughs> this was the mom and this was, she laughed. And, and you see this, this freed up, that laughter, that Sweetness is like frees us from the places where we, we start getting tighter and tighter and tighter. It doesn't solve the problem. It doesn't get the teenage son to do, to behave in the way we want, but it changes our window of tolerance so that uh, my interactions can be more open and have the potential of more connection. Oh my goodness. We are going to have to leave leave it right there. I we could just continue. We're going to have to continue this conversation. Um and for the class info by the way, we'll we'll get to that. Um where where do people find out about that if they're interested? Yeah, well, my current website of my workshops is clarityservices.us. Okay. And well so my, that's my current business and then also that that class is at the Hutchinson Center. So you can also look up at the Hutchinson Center, their professional development. Very good. So our guest today on Healthy Options has been Peggy Smith, certified trainer with the International Center for Nonviolent Communication. Thank you so much for being here with us today on Healthy Options. You can find links to the show and to other information that was mentioned at the Public Affairs Archives, our archives at healthyoptions at weru.org. You can also hear previous Healthy Options podcasts when you get uh, the WERU app. Thanks to Joel Mann and Amy Brown of WERU for engineering support, to Petra Hall for production assistance. And as always, I want to thank all of our WER listeners and supporters. This is Rhonda Feynman wishing you the best in health.